Is there a time where you ever walked into something and gone, man, that smells awesome? Anyone here ever had one of those really pleasant smelling days? <laughs> well, if you walk into your own garden, surely the, you know, in spring, surely something like that would be a pleasant smell. Perhaps uh, maybe there'd be you know, some sort of uh, thing that would trigger a, a good memory like that. I hope there's something like that. Maybe going into your mum's kitchen, you know, as, you know, after she's been baking uh, cookies or something like that. Maybe there's, hopefully there's some sort of pleasant memory of our sense of smell o- over the years. For me, when I was 16 and working my first full-time job, I was exposed for the first time to the f- smell because I went to church where we did international roast and, um, and awful church coffee, and I'm a veteran of that stuff. But, but I've, I remember the first time I smelt freshly ground coffee. Going into Chadston Shopping Centre, where my first job was, I got a job with Angus and Robertson, and I'd walk into the, the fashion capital of Australia, Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, that's not me. Anyway, and... And I walk into this shopping centre and we were coming the back way where the buses came in and you walk in and where my shop was located, the bookshop I was located, was near the fresh food stuff. And you would walk in and there would be a cafe as you walked in, fresh roast coffee. And then two shops down, which is almost opposite where my shop was, was a smell of Baker's Delight, fresh bread. And provided I caught the right bus and got there at about 8.30, I could partake of those pleasures before going into work. If I didn't, if the bus was running late or if I caught the wrong one, I would be forced to wait until my morning break at 10.30, 90 minutes of suffering, of smelling all that stuff <laughs> before getting, and, and, um, and I fast became a caffeine addict. But that's another matter. But... There's some really there's there's things that I remember in my times past, just really strong smells that bring back really amazing memories. And I'm 43 now, and uh, the smell of freshly ground coffee never gets old. There's been some really pungent ones. Who's got some experiences of some really bad ones? I, uh, for me, running the gauntlet at a Myers shopping centre where you have to go in through the perfume counter. <laughs> that one, that one is that one. That one always messes me up. But one that really stuck with me was when I was driving a truck. I'd be, I'd be. My dad would. My dad was a truck driver, and and when I was like you know twelve and that, I would be in the truck with him, and he would drive the to the docks, do all the containers around Port Melbourne and stuff, and we would drive down the Westgate Freeway every morning at about five a.m. on my school holidays. Great way to sleep in, not. And. There would be this smell just wafted into the cabin at this one point. And I'd go, what is that? Then you look around and you realise, ah, that's the craft factory. It's the location where they make Vegemite. Vegemite, as a finished product, is just semi-liquid gold. I had it on my sourdough toast yesterday in thick, I love it. I love my Vegemite. The process of making it, not so precious. And yet, it's interesting that the, the thing that can get my, capture my smell and the thing that can repel my smell has one key ingredient in common, and it's yeast. 
Very interesting how my sense of smell, both good and bad, is related to a similar product, adding to that. I'll leave all that going for a minute. We're just going to get into chapter 2, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians, and I'll come back to these aromas ideas in a second. Let's start at verse 12. Paul writes this, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. Keep your thumb in there. We'll come back to chapter 3 just for a little bit in a moment. Just some thoughts from that passage. First up, that bit about Troas at the start. I went to Troas. We read here that he hasn't located Titus yet. Reason being is Titus has gone back to Corinth on his behalf. Last week, you hopefully remember that there were two incidences between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. There was a painful visit and a severe letter that was sent, right? Titus has gone back to Corinth delivering the severe letter. And Paul wants to see things reconciled in Corinth and is waiting for Titus to come back with glad tidings going, yeah, they read, they listened, they've changed their ways, let's get on with the job. But he's gotten a Troas, that's obviously the, the checkpoint, the rendezvous point for the two. And they've not been able to connect. Titus is nowhere to be found at that point. And yet we read that Paul has this open door of opportunity to do ministry there. Troas went on to become the place where Eutychus, you remember him? He's the kid who fell out the window, fell to his death and then got raised up again, that guy. Yeah, because Paul preached all night. That's the location. So there was great, obviously, an intended beer if people can listen all night to your preaching. But there is this open door there. It's this amazing thing that can happen. And yet Paul can't. Titus isn't back. And Paul is completely hamstrung by this radio silence coming from Corinth at this time. We read in the previous verses that Paul writes that his own joy is intertwined with the joy of the Corinthians. And his lack of reconciliation with those guys at this time was actually hindering the missional efforts in a new environment. There's an openness to the gospel, but the missional drive is diminished because of this lack of reconciliation between two parties. Friends, I see that as quite pertinent to the Australian church right now. I firmly believe a unified church and unified members create a greenhouse environment for healthy mission. 
The early DNA of the first century church had that, that singleness, that oneness of mind, that singleness of mind in the Greek describes it as a singleness of cause. They were not on the same emotional page. They didn't have one big group hug. They weren't on the same intellectual page and there were differences of opinions. But they all were able to look at the one thing which was their cause, which was Christ, and they all drew together because they had that one thing in their mind. Singleness, of course. And I think in the last 12 months, 2017 has kind of been marred because our single cause has kind of been fragmented for a bit. There's been social debates that have kind of split our opinions and and we've been so focused on our intellectual differences or our theological differences that we've actually forsaken the singleness of cause that is the missional drive of Christ. And I think we kind of have taken the eye off the ball and we focused on one particular sin for much of the year. And actually, you know, there's different things that we've done and, and I think it's fragmented the missionary drive. And when things aren't reconciled in that setting, when there is no unity amongst the churches like that, mission stops. Mission gets harmed. And I think we've hit a bit of a missional speed hump in the year 2017 for the whole church in Australia. I do long for the day when the whole people of God operate as one band and one sound. The most likely place that's going to happen is the other side of eternity, I think. (laughs) But it can happen in micro settings, such as this one, the local assembly. And I believe as we go into 2018 as a season of mission that lies ahead for us, with Alpha and the different missional things we're going to be doing as a church, then unity is something we have to make sure sticks. And that this singleness of drive, even if we have a difference of opinion, even if we don't necessarily want to be in a group hug together at times, and I get that, the one thing that unites us is this cause that says our drive is Christ and seeing this world reconciled to him. And us demonstrating the kingdom value of reconciliation with each other will do a major work in demonstrating that to the world around us. So the more unified we stay, the greater our mission chances are. If we're not reconciled, we take the eye off the ball and we forget the mission. And I see that in Paul's experience of Troas there. Then we get into mission. And Paul speaks about mission in the form of processions and aromas. Paul writes in this passage that Christ is leading him captive in his triumphal procession. And the Corinthians, with their deep Roman connections, would resonate well with what Paul is saying here, probably better than we do at surface level. It was referred to also in 1 Corinthians. But the triumphal procession here was where the emperor would go all out to promote a military victory. And the nation's leadership, the emperor and the senate, would actually do all they could to ensure the whole city and all that would listen would be aware of the most recent victory, that the Roman Empire was advancing. And to celebrate all that, there would be pagan thanksgiving services, there would be incense in the air with offerings to pagan deities. There will be a parade of the spoils and the captives being led through the city by the soldiers and their leaders 
There will be a very loud proclamation of victory and there will be visual proof of that laid out before them so the whole citizens of the area knew that Rome was advancing. The emperor was winning. The parade will be quite a sight. The activity around it will be sensory overload. Sadly, it would end in death or slavery for those they captured. But every time a burnt offering would be offered, every time incense was burned, a memory of this procession would be triggered. And with all that imagery going on, Paul explains that he has experienced that sort of event joyfully in Christ. On the Damascus Road, some 14, 15 years before, as far as Paul was concerned, Jesus took him captive. Paul now had a call that was to demonstrate and proclaim Christ's victory to all who would hear. So that there would be literally no doubt in the world that Jesus was reigning and his kingdom was advancing. And every time you and I set foot out there and mention the name Jesus, we are proclaiming his victory. This, friends, is the Christianity that we are all called to. This is not about saying just a special memorized prayer to merely avoid hell. This is a life of being utterly captured by Christ and living joyfully under his universal reign and being willing participants in his procession across the world. And our announcement of this fact, that we tell everyone everywhere that I am a captive of Christ, this leaves an impression and creates memories on the people we are around. This is the aroma that Paul speaks of. When we speak of Christ's rule, Paul poetically writes that it's like an aroma that comes from us. We actually waft the smell of Christ's victory and triumph everywhere we go. Just like that procession where all you would smell was the offerings and the incenses and all the smells that would come with the procession to the point that the captives would actually smell like it too because they've been marinating in it for the whole procession, surrounded by it. You know how you walk around someone and you know, you know how you, you know, if you get in a room full of smokers, you come out going, what was that? Back in my office days, before they banned it in offices, I used to cop that a bit. It was terrible. It was like that with these captives. The smell of all the procession would be on them. And as it's on you, this is going to produce two responses from people around you, depending on how they perceive that aroma to be. When I worked in Chadston, some of the staff hated the smell of that part of the shopping centre because they didn't like coffee. Or they were gluten intolerant and couldn't have the bread. So I was like teasing them. Going past the Vegemite factory, my dad, who liked a beer or three, ran down the window and got a gear. 
<laughs> while I gagged. <laughs> if you were in my house last Tuesday and you were a vegan, you nearly would have died. <laughs> because I'd slow roasted a leg of lamb all day. <laughs> and it was beautiful. The same smell in many settings will trigger differing responses. And Paul writes that the smell of the gospel is going to be both sweet and repugnant, depending on where the inhaler is at. There will be those who will be attracted to the life and triumph it represents. And they will rejoice at the idea of Jesus being the master. And there will be those who find it repulsive because they don't want to live under his rule. But if you have been around Christ, if you have been captured by Christ, if you have been around him so much that it's almost like you've been marinating in what he is, in his spirit, then you are going to give off an aroma. Because we're swept along in this victory procession, we can't not give it off. And our mission is to continue to wave the incense pots, to live as living sacrifices, knowing that some will be attracted to the victory of the king it represents. Paul goes on to say that this is actually a pretty noble place to live like. There's nobility in being one of the captives. Captives. Paul asks a question of the Corinthians. Who is equal to that sort of task? And in his immediate context, he says this, definitely not the charlatans trying to get into the Corinthian church right now. Definitely not the ones making the gospel a tool for personal gain. Definitely not the ones who are distorting and preaching another one. Definitely not the ones who are teaching a Judaizing sort of gospel. Instead, it's the ones who truly know and are captured by the gospel he knows and preaches. The one he was authorized by the Jerusalem church to proclaim in their midst. And that was something the new guys in town were not able to claim. I make that last statement because it feeds into chapter 3, verse 1. Let's go there now. Just these last few verses before we get into communion. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You should know that you, you, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul is doing something here that actually should stop the Corinthians in their tracks for just a moment. And he also ties this into something and begins to introduce a concept about what God is doing all across the world. 
and brings us into something that we're about to uh, remember at the communion table. There is that lingering element of some among the Corinthians questioning Paul's credentials. And he speaks into that with the references to letters of recommendation and all that stuff. But then he says something really masterful here. Saying that if they want to know the validity of Paul's ministry, then they should look in the mirror and make an assessment of what they see. If Paul was writing his CV for a church selection committee, he is actually citing the work done in Corinth as exhibit A of his ministry calling and ability. Now, I have a bit of a struggle with that. I reckon if I had Corinth on my CV to this search committee before coming to this church and, and you were doing you know, a discerning church search committee would be reading about, oh, I've heard about that church, I've heard about their dysfunction, I've heard about their craziness. And he's the pastor and he's claiming that is his own. I am qualified because look what I did there. Imagine how it might look when the church where some of your most thorough work was also that dysfunctional church. Imagine if Ephesus phoned Corinth and said, How's Paul, how was Paul down there? Oh, we've got a church that's all divided and it's dysfunctional and there's all these false gospel teachers and there's all this, you know, we've got some unrepentant sin going on and yes, everything's sweet. Oh, yeah, Paul's cool. Would it be worth the risk to write that? Would he even put that on a CV? If Paul was anything less than a man of integrity, then Corinth might not have even made his list of achievements. And yet here we see that Paul is actually doubling down on Corinth. Not because of anything he brings to the table, but he's recognizing something special that is going on in their midst. And he writes this, Corinth... You are not a line on a pastor's CV. You are not the builder of man's credentials. You are Christ's letter. With his own ministry and law written on, our, on their hearts. The Spirit is doing his best work in Corinth. And that's how it's supposed to be. The alternate ministers in their midst seem to be Judaizers of some description. They're calling for the Gentile church to do their Christian faith in a distinctly Jewish way. With Moses perhaps carrying a lot, almost equal weight with Jesus here. Definitely calling for a lot of the rites and rituals of the Jewish way into the church, telling them you've got to do that stuff as well as Jesus. But Paul brings them into a new idea that makes them not like that. He describes himself not as a guru, not as a celebrity pastor, not a sophist, not anything that demands any sort of honour from others. Instead, he uses the word minister here, which translates as a steward or a household servant. He says, I'm the household servant, God's household servant of his new covenant. And you, Corinth, are the recipients.
Look at this fleshed out in the next few weeks. He's only just introducing it here in the next few chapters. Look into this. But we have just a brief difference between what the Judaizers and Paul are saying in their Gospels here. The new covenant that Paul preaches is not of letter but of the Spirit. And he said, while the letter kills, the Mosaic law, the Spirit gives life. He's not writing that the Old Testament is dead and lifeless. We do so much devotional reading in our Old Testament. That's not for nothing. We preach the Old Testament. That's not for nothing. There is life to be found as you read and be enriched by by the pages of the Old Testament. Our next sermon series will be Old Testament, Leviticus of all things. But the things the Old Testament calls for to save us have been completed. Trusting it and not what it points to brings about death. Keeping all its rules and rituals will not save us for those things are again complete in Christ. And instead Paul preaches Jesus and faith in him alone. And that is the gospel that we know today. And this new covenant which is not written in tablets, i.e. not written on stones like the Ten Commandments, but written in hearts, is what we remember and celebrate here today. Jeremiah 31 is always in Paul's mind as he writes. When he talks about a new covenant, this is what he has in mind. From Jer- This is what it says, Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. We have a time coming for Israel where a new covenant will be restored, will be brought to the nation. Paul writes about that hope coming to be in Jesus. Paul quote, has that hints of that all throughout his letters. Jeremiah 31 comes to the fore a lot. And he writes distinctly here, you are the recipients of a new covenant. That's what the people of God are today. What's what the church is. We live under this new covenant. And as we come to the communion table, Luke 22, verse 19 and 20. Jesus states this, that he took the bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and then he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. From Jesus' death, from faith in him alone and what he did for us to satisfy the requirements of the law. The law brought about death 
For in reality, we can't do those things to keep it. But then the Spirit brings life. What Jesus did and what we know today through his Spirit is where our life comes from. As a minister today, I'm nothing more than a household servant in God's house. At this time, I steward what this new covenant looks like. In other words, God has it to be distributed. I'm here to point to it. But it's your time now for Jesus to take center stage and for you to reflect on that new covenant that you have with him. You are Christ's letter. You are what God is doing. You are what the Spirit of God is doing. You're the recipients of His law in your hearts. You are the recipient of His Spirit. And you know through the Gospel that your sin is paid for in full. That the requirements of the law are being kept through Christ. And that we are free in a new Gospel and a new covenant.